0: I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of our Catholic tradition. And we uh, very much like you to be part of the show by adding your questions and comments. You can do that by sending us questions and comments via email, by writing to Scripture and Tradition at. EWTN.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today, in the Gospel of St. Mark, Chapter 5, we will see where our Lord travels to the house of Jairus. He does so to heal his daughter, but on the way, he encounters another need for healing, this time from a hemorrhaging woman. And this is something that we want to show, that the placement of these two miracles in one scripture passage helps them to interpret one another. Uh, it's, we'll see how important that is. A uh, little detail to get you ready. The woman has a hemorrhage for 12 years, And the little girl who's healed is 12 years old. This is something that gives us a clue. So we want to see how our Lord makes us whole and calls us to faith. That's going to be what we want to deal with. Now, of course, you can get my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee at EWTN.com. And there it is, item number 52885. 52885. So let's take a look at this. The healing of the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus' daughter occurs in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And we can see here, Uh, The first meditation that I'd want us to do will be on Mark 5, 21 to 23. Let's begin there. In 521 it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Now, we see, I mentioned last week that our Lord had been on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And this was, the, that was the east side, okay? He returns now to the west side of the lake which is where Jewish people live and issues... Related to Judaism, will come to the fore. This contrasts with healing uh, or exercising a couple thousand demons that go into a couple thousand pigs uh, that's on the Gentile side. They didn't have to worry about pigs, maybe wild ones, but no domesticated pigs on the West side. And IT'S IMPORTANT TO NOTE HOW ST. MARK HAS OUR LORD CROSSING THE SEA GALILEE BACK AND FORTH. HE DOES IT A NUMBER OF TIMES. AND ONE OF THE THINGS THAT'S HAPPENING IN THE GOSPEL OF MARK IS THAT THE KIND OF MIRACLES HE DOES FIRST ON THE JEWISH SIDE, HE WILL FREQUENTLY DO ON THE GENTILE SIDE. IT SHOWS THAT OUR LORD'S MISSION IS EXACTLY AS HE TAUGHT. FIRST HE GOES TO ISRAEL, THEN HE GOES TO THE GENTILES. AND THE SEA OF GALILEE UNITES THE MISSION. I, I REMEMBER THINKING ABOUT THAT IN GRADUATE SCHOOL BECAUSE IT MADE ME THINK THAT THIS MAY BE A SYMBOL OF BAPTISM. REMEMBER HOW ST. PAUL HAD WRITTEN? THERE'S NEITHER Jew nor GREEK. Slave nor free, but you are all baptized into Christ. And I was talking about baptism, and this is something that uh, I think may make the lake something of a, a vague symbol. I wouldn't push it too far, but it's a vague symbol of baptism. Let's now go to Mark chapter five verses. 22-23. We see it says there, Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and, when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, first of all, keep in mind that the synagogue was an institution of the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were lay people who started a reform movement within Israel. There might have been some priests, but for the most part, the Pharisees were were not priests, they were laity. And they called the people to live a holiness that the priests were supposed to live but they had not been. And we see that the synagogue was meant to be a place to teach people the scriptures. They couldn't offer sacrifice at a synagogue that wasn't allowed. only at Jerusalem could They'd do that and a priest had to offer the sacrifice. but these people would teach scripture and Jairus is the head of of that synagogue and he is the one that would be teaching them the scriptures and would belong to the party of the Pharisees. His name in Hebrew is Yair, Yair. Um, The U.S. at the end of Jairus is just a Greek and Latin ending to a Hebrew name, but Yair. Would be his name. It appears seven times in the Old Testament. And it comes from two possible roots. And, you know, poetically, people like doing that, you know, having a name that included two possible roots. One is from the root or, that means he will give light. But there's another root that means. HE WILL RAISE. THE ya AT THE BEGINNING IS THIRD-PERSON MASCULINE uh, uh, INDICATOR OF uh, MASCULINE SINGULAR THAT HE WILL DO THIS. SO CLEARLY A MAN'S NAME. AND IT MAY BE THAT ST. MARK INCLUDED THE NAME BECAUSE Some people in this community may have known Jairus. You know, if you can help people to make a connection with somebody and show that, you know, I know this guy. This, you know, people will say that all the time. I I knew this guy and, you know, he was trustworthy. This really happened and, and I know it from him directly. That's one of the reasons to mention the name. And um, it's interesting that St. Matthew doesn't name Jairus. Uh, might be because people in his community, and maybe even he didn't remember, you know, it's possible. But in March community they very well may have. Now, something that we also ought to pay attention to Earlier in the Gospel of St. Mark, in chapters 2 to 3, there are a number of disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees. Our Lord is growing in authority. His authority is increasing. And there's a lot of respect for Him. But there's also tension with the Pharisees BECAUSE THEY HAD PREVIOUSLY HAD AUTHORITY. THEY WERE THE ONES WHO WOULD INTERPRET THE LAW. AND I THINK I MENTIONED THIS IN, WHEN WE'RE GOING THROUGH MY FIRST BOOK, THAT OFTENTIMES THE PHARISEES WOULD SAY, WELL, RABBI Issachar SAID THIS, BUT RABBI Yochanan SAID THIS. ON THE OTHER HAND, Rabbi Levy said this, but Rabbi Shimon said this. And and they would go with the different opinions and argue through them trying to understand what they meant and what you had to do. Um, Jesus spoke with another kind of authority. He didn't cite the other rabbis. He said things on his own authority. And that added to the tension. It made it more tense between him and the Pharisees. So that is something that we should keep in mind. And it's important because as Jairus approaches Jesus and begs for help, any of those disputes fade into unimportance. This man is worried about his beloved daughter. That's what he's concerned about. And he simply wants Jesus to heal her. Sometimes the disputes with Pharisees were about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Not here. There's no argument here. Instead, uh, we see that Jairus recognizes that power can come through Jesus. He must have witnessed some of the other healings. And this is something that uh, comes from physical contact with Jesus. So he recognizes that too. And that's why he asks Jesus to lay hands. He doesn't, uh, there there were some scholars back in the 17 and early 1800s Who tried to claim, well, you know, of course, Jesus must have had a medicine bag and he was really a doctor. He just didn't think people could understand the sophisticated medicine he had. And so he pretended just to uh, lay hands on people. No, they knew about doctors. There were doctors around, but Jesus didn't heal with medicine by human nature. He healed by his word and his touch. And Jairus seems to understand that. Now, we don't know, and we have no way to know or speculate whether Jairus had taken part in the disputes with Jesus. But what becomes important is that his love for his daughter evokes faith in Jesus. This is a very, very important thing. And this is something that we see with the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair. And he says that she was forgiven much because she loved much. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 48 and following. him. Your sins are forgiven. Now those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So others are disputing, You can't forgive sins, but her faith and love you know, are what wins her forgiveness that this is very very important you know for her and here too it's not the arguments that drive Jairus on it's love for his daughter that then evokes faith in Jesus and Notice something here. Our Lord did not demand that Jairus cease taking part in the Pharisees' arguments. Now, you have to stop being a Pharisee. If you want a healing from me, young man, you better just disassociate yourself from them because they don't like me. Our Lord doesn't do that. And we need to learn from this so that we don't do that either. People who offend or oppose us don't doesn't matter. What matters is that we love and have faith, and that we have to show both. And there's a line that I love from Matthew chapter twelve verses nineteen to twenty one where it's quoting from Isaiah 42, the citation of Isaiah 42. It speaks about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, that he will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, The Gentiles will hope. Now, this is a wonderful image. When you say he will not break a bruised reed. Now, if you bruise a reed, the easy temptation, I've done it many times, is just to take it and say, oh, it's broken, so just rip it off. Or if you see a smoldering wick of a candle, or something like that. There's smoke coming out because there's still a spark in there, and you know a lot of times, you know, to prevent the wick from burning down just by that little uh, coal that's inside of it, I'll just wet my fingers and put it out, snuff it out. Jesus doesn't do that to people. If they're a bruised reed, he tries to mend them. If there's a smoldering wick where there's just a little tiny spark, he tries to bring it back to the life of faith. That's his approach. And this is something that we need to remember in the way that we deal with people, especially those who oppose us. We have to ask ourselves, do we, encourage those little sparks of faith, those little glimmers of hope and faith that we find in other people. And the little bits of love that might be in some people. Some people find it very difficult to love because they haven't been loved. They don't know what it looks like. They really don't. And this is something that we have to ask ourselves, do I help to encourage what little bit of love there is, or do I say, you're useless, there's no hope for you, I'm snuffing you out? You have to ask that question. Do you look for the sparks of flame that are still in the smoldering wicks of different people's faith? Or do you say, oh, your faith isn't perfect, so it's not right? Because a lot of people might have a little bit of faith, but their life is in bad order, a lot of sin. And you encourage the faith that's there, or do you just say, nope, no hope for you, I'm snuffing you out? We can ask Jesus to help us, ask Him to help cherish the goal of fanning the tiniest little sparks of faith into flames of faith. Try to help people light the world with God's love and faith in God. And ask our Lord about how you have dealt with people whose faith is weak or has faded away. What would he ask you to do about those whose faith has faded? And what would he do to help you DEAL WITH SUCH PEOPLE. TALK TO THEM LIKE A FRIEND TO A FRIEND. AND THEN I WOULD CONCLUDE YOUR PRAYER AGAIN WITH THE SOUL OF CHRIST PRAYER. SOUL OF CHRIST, SANCTIFY ME. BODY OF CHRIST, SAVE ME. BLOOD OF CHRIST, INEBRIATE ME. WATER FROM THE SIDE OF CHRIST, WASH ME. WITHIN YOUR WOUNDS, HIDE ME. THIS WOULD BE A GOOD PRAYER FOR US TO USE AT THE CONCLUSION OF OUR MEDITATION. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and deal with the next meditation about the woman with a hemorrhage. So please stay with us. we are continuing on with mark chapter 5 the healing of the daughter of Jairus and of the woman with a hemorrhage and right now in mark 5 24 to 29 we're going to turn to the woman with the hemorrhage let's start off with the text in mark 5 verse 24 to 27 it says so jesus so he went with him Jesus went with Jairus. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd And touched his cloak. All right, let's take a look at this. First of all, they start out for the house of Jairus, and all of a sudden, attention is turned away from Jairus' daughter to this woman with the hemorrhage. And there's a a lot of shift from this urgency. About Jairus' daughter dying, over to this one woman in the crowd and to the crowd itself. Okay, so that's a little shift. And the woman is never named. Jairus is, but she's not named. I suspect that, you know, uh, it's because Mark and his community didn't know the woman, they knew the story, but they didn't know hers. They didn't give a name. And it describes her 12-year flow of blood, plus how she'd gone for medical care. And the doctors not only failed to improve her, they made her worse. Now, I love the parallel in Luke chapter 8. If you remember that Luke In Colossians 4 verse 14, is said to be a beloved physician. He was the medical doctor. And in Luke 8 verse 43, he describes the woman this way. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. He doesn't add the part that they just made her worse. He skips that. And I can't help but think it may be a professional courtesy to his fellow doctors. Doctors uh, in ancient times and today do their best, but there's a lot about the human body they don't know. Um, Today we know a lot more, but uh, but still they don't know everything and they do their best. So he extends, St. Luke extends just a little professional courtesy to the doctors. Um, That's one of my reads there. And something else to keep in mind, the fact that this woman has this ongoing flow of blood, this ongoing hemorrhage, it makes her ritually unclean. She's unkosher. Blood is very important in the Bible. And it was seen as the seat of life. Your life is in the blood. This is where life resides. And therefore, because life is sacred, blood is sacred, that's one of the things going on. And... THIS IS SOMETHING THAT IS VERY IMPORTANT. BECAUSE SHE'S BLEEDING and FOR ALL THESE YEARS, SHE WOULD NOT BE ALLOWED INTO THE TEMPLE. SHE COULDN'T GO BECAUSE THE FLOW OF BLOOD MAKES HER RITUALLY UNCLEAN. AND SHE COULDN'T JOIN THE COMMUNITY IN WORSHIP. Um, any blood flow from a man or a woman precludes them being able to come into the temple. So, then we see something else going on here. I mentioned this at the beginning of today's show. The story of the hemorrhaging woman is set inside the story of the healing of Jairus. So the healing of Jairus' daughter is at the beginning and at the end of the text. This woman with the hemorrhage is right in between that. And this is a technique. Again, I mentioned already that she was sick with the hemorrhage for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter was 12 years old in her sickness. They're both female, both, uh, uh, yeah, female one a girl, the other a woman. And this, in some ways, is meant to be symbolic. It's, you know, the woman's hemorrhage begins about the time of uh, Jairus' daughter's life. And in that sense, they're meant to be interpreting each other. And some people have suggested that they have become symbols of Israel and what God is going to do with Israel. But here, you don't see that brought out in a a very explicit way. Instead... The focus in this passage is on faith. And this is where by she believes that if she merely touches Jesus' garments that she would be healed. Now, for someone who has a hemorrhage to touch another person makes the second person also unclean. And that's part of this uh, issue here. But she touches with faith, and she is healed. And while medicine failed to heal her, the touch of Jesus does heal her. And she could feel the healing in her body. And in fact, she had started hemorrhaging Uh, 10 or more years before the public ministry began. Our Lord was still in Nazareth working in the carpenter shop. And this is something that we should ask about. You know, earlier, the crowds had been coming to Jesus, looking for healings and exorcisms, and she could have done that, but she doesn't. We could ask, was she reticent to do that because she might make everybody else unclean? Uh, Was this extra embarrassment? Nobody knows. But she didn't go to be healed when everybody else was going to be healed. This was something that she was doing uh, at this point. Notice she also, and, and this makes me think that she's embarrassed because she approaches our Lord surreptitiously. She doesn't sort of go right up to Him, I need a healing. She's trying to sneak it in. She tells herself, if I just go and touch the hem of His garment, probably the fringes on a garment that He wore, the tzitzit, Um, and that if she just touches that, she'll be healed. And this is all inside of her own mind. She's, nobody told her to think this. This is what she does think. And yet, even though she's very shy, she's trying to sneak in, to just touch him so she gets healed, our Lord teaches that, or, or treats her as if that little spark of faith in the wick of her little life, is enough to bring her into flame. This is very important. And this brings up some questions for us, something we should ask. Are we afraid to speak out about our faith? Are we afraid what other people might think of us? Is that something that bothers us? And do we try to hide out of embarrassment, maybe even humility? And do we try to keep our faith very private, very personal, very hidden, just between me and God? If we do that, why do we do that? Why do we try to keep our faith TO OURSELVES. AND WHAT I WOULD RECOMMEND IS THAT YOU SPEAK TO OUR LORD JESUS ABOUT YOUR FAITH. WHAT DOES IT MEAN TO YOU? WHAT MIGHT HE SAY TO YOU ABOUT YOUR HESITANCE IN SPEAKING UP ABOUT THE FAITH? WHAT WOULD BE HIS ATTITUDE TOWARD YOU? AND WHAT, AND THIS IS REALLY KEY, WHAT DOES OUR LORD, want you to do to make your faith in Him known. He knows it. But remember how He said that let your light shine before other people so that they may you know, give glory to your Father in Heaven. So this what do you think our Lord wants us to do ABOUT MAKING OUR FAITH IN HIM KNOWN. AND AGAIN, CONCLUDE WITH THE SOUL OF CHRIST PRAYER, Uh, ASKING OUR LORD TO GIVE US HIS HEALING BY HIS SOUL, HIS BODY, HIS BLOOD, HIS PASSION, HIS SPIRIT, ALL OF THAT. Uh, THIS IS SOMETHING THAT WE WANT HIM TO DO SO THAT MY FAITH CAN HELP OTHER PEOPLE TO TAKE FAITH MORE SERIOUSLY AND HELP BRING THEM TO CHRIST. I GOT TO SAY, I'M VERY, VERY uh, FILLED WITH ADMIRATION FOR PEOPLE LIKE, uh, YOU KNOW, uh, uh, BILLY GRAHAM AND HIS SON AND OTHERS WHO VERY SIMPLY, VERY STRAIGHTFORWARDLY MAKE COMMERCIALS INVITING YOU TO COME KNOW JESUS Also, uh, the folks who are doing Catholic little ads, very clever, very beautiful, on how to bring people back to the church. These are very important witnesses to faith. We need more of that to be sure. Um, We have to find ways to do it. All right. Let's take some questions here. I have an email from Michael. Michael says, Dear Father Mitch, since the Holy Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal, how then do we explain Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 31, which talks about the creation of the wisdom of God, which is applied to Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity? All right, now, so that you know what Michael is talking about, Let me go over to Proverbs, chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. Wisdom is speaking, and wisdom speaks as a woman. In Hebrew and other Semitic languages, abstract nouns are in a feminine form. All nouns in Semitic languages are masculine or feminine. All nouns. And even the verbs have a masculine form or a feminine form. Okay, that's, they just do that. Um, here, wisdom says that the Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. But something about, I thought so, yeah. It's been a while since I'd studied this. But it says, the Lord, kanani, kanani. And the word kanani can mean to purchase. But it also means to acquire. Now, in, uh, excuse, excuse me, it can also mean to create. It is hard to tell which it means here. Could well try to imply all three meanings, to purchase, to acquire, to create. And so the problem is a lot of Christian writers have compared Jesus to wisdom, Lady Wisdom, because he's the Word made flesh. So does that mean that God created him and the answer is no. First of all, this is a passage that is especially, um, uh, as a matter of fact. A number of translations use the the word uh, uh, not instead of create. They use possess, possess, and the creation of wisdom in nature is the first of his acts. So that this refers, you know, even though some of the fathers have taken time to, to, to think about how the second person of the Trinity personifies God's wisdom, AND THEY USE THIS PASSAGE. THE PASSAGE IS ACTUALLY SPEAKING ABOUT THE CREATED WISDOM THAT IS BUILT INTO THE CREATION. THINK ABOUT THE WISDOM OF CREATION. THERE IS A LOT OF ABSOLUTELY AMAZING ELEMENTS OF WISDOM THROUGHOUT CREATION. The universe is very, very finely tuned. So there are twenty constants in the universe. They apply everywhere. The speed of light is everywhere. The force of gravity is everywhere. These constants have to be precise from point zero 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 one to sometimes 30 or 40 decimal point places. It's uh, amazing how precise the speed of light has to be so that if it were off ever so slightly, you couldn't have gravity. And gravity has to be a precise force. And all the constants have to be very precise. And they all have to be precise at the same time. It's not like, well, okay, we'll, we'll let gravity slide, but then do something over here with speed of light. No, no, they, all the constants have to be absolutely timed and, and perfectly in tune with each other. Now, that is wisdom and a mind who knows that that fine-tuning is necessary, and a mind that has enough power behind it to enact it. That's the kind of natural wisdom that this passage is talking about. And it it talks about how all the fields and the winds and the the waves, everything... IS BUILT ON THIS WISDOM. SO I WOULDN'T USE THIS AS IN ANY WAY TO TAKE AWAY FROM THE CO-EQUALITY OF THE THREE PERSONS OF THE TRINITY. IT DOESN'T DO THAT. IT'S SPEAKING OF A CREATURE WISDOM. AND THEN SECONDARILY THAT BECOMES AN IMAGE OF CHRIST, THE PERSONIFICATION OF DIVINE WISDOM. AND This is uh, something to appreciate the wisdom in creation. And the more you study creation, the more you see that wisdom and cherish it. But it's an image of Christ. It is not Christ himself. Okay? So you have to make that distinction. All right, we're going to take a break. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. First of all, I want to ask you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. We will be talking with Deacon Dennis Lambert and we'll be discussing why more than one-third of all Catholics who attend Mass regularly, meaning at least once a week, don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We'll hear what he thinks and what he thinks can be done to bridge the gap in their lack of understanding. that it'll be very important because uh, this is part of the bishop's effort to get folks to better understand. We've had, I, quite frankly, the burden of most of this goes to catechists who did not really uh, teach much about the sacraments So we're going to try to do what we can to help undo some of that mess uh, and help Catholics know more about it. All right. We are now going to go back to an email. Um, This is from Humphrey. He said, Good day, Father Paco. Recently there was a great discussion and disagreement between some Filipino Catholic apologists regarding the expression, God died in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which causes division and disobedience with local church authorities, as well as confusion on Catholic teachings. I believe you can give me satisfying answers to the following questions. What do we mean, what exactly do we mean when we say God died on the cross? Two... How can we reconcile the expression God died with God is immortal or undying? And thirdly, should we understand the expression God died literally or figuratively or metaphorically? Humphrey. Couple things there, Humphrey. Let's take a look at those one at a time. When we say God died on the cross, the emphasis there. IS THAT JESUS CHRIST, WHO WAS CRUCIFIED AND DIED AND WAS BURIED, IS TRULY GOD. SO IT IS GOD MADE FLESH WHO DIED ON THE CROSS. BUT THEN AS TO YOUR SECOND QUESTION, HOW DO WE RECONCILE THE QUESTION GOD DIED WITH GOD IS IMMORTAL OR UNDYING? THE ISSUE IS THIS. IT DOESN'T SAY, NOR DOES IT MEAN, that divinity ceased to exist. It doesn't say that the divinity died. That would be metaphysically impossible. But it does point out that Jesus, who is God, is the one who died on the cross. Therefore, the one who died is God. That's why you say God died. But his divinity did not cease. Instead, his human soul, which is also, you know, absolutely united to the divine nature, his human soul went down to the dead. That's why we say, uh, uh, based on First Peter chapter three, that in the spirit he went to the prison where he preached to the spirits his human spirit is inherently attached to his divinity and so god went down to preach to the dead uh, it's also in the creed it says he descended into hades which is english he descended to hell so that's what's going on there and uh, again Uh, God uh, uh, died, truly, but God is immortal. It's just that his divinity attached to his human spirit continued in the place of the dead. Then, number three, how should we understand, or should we understand that God died literally? Yes, yes, or figuratively. No, no, no Literally, because again, divinity did not cease to exist, but God made flesh, truly died. And that's why we say God died. Okay? So that's what's going on there. It's an important distinction, and we need to pay attention to that. All right. And here, um, an interesting question from Wilbert from Tanzania. That's a country I'd like to go to, by the way, Wilbert. I wish I could be there, but I don't think that'll happen for me anymore in my life, but uh, it's one of those places I would have loved to have gone. But anyway, it is not forbidden to attend gospel meetings. You know, if they become anti-Catholic, then you have to... You know, withdraw. I, if they become anti Catholic, I would stay away. If they teach contrary to the Catholic Church, then I would consider withdrawing. But if they're teaching straight up scripture that we hold in common and they teach the truths that we share, there's no problem in going. Now, how are you supposed to know? Wilbert, you, like anybody else, NEEDS TO READ THE CATECHISM, WHICH YOU CAN ALSO GET ONLINE, BUT READ THE CATECHISM SO THAT YOU BETTER KNOW THE CATHOLIC FAITH. YOU NEED TO KNOW THE CATHOLIC FAITH BETTER AND BETTER. AND FOCUS ON THAT. SO, AND YOU'LL SEE IF THERE ARE ANY DIFFERENCES. SO THAT'S A VERY IMPORTANT THING TO DO, IS CHECK, YOU KNOW, WHAT THE FAITH TEACHES OFFICIALLY, and if there's any divergence, um, you have to, you know, think about not going back. But if they're just teaching the gospel and going through Bible stories, that should be no problem. But uh, just don't don't stick around if it becomes anti-Catholic. And then we have another email from John in Virginia. Father Mitch, in the Old Testament sacrifices, did the Jews eat the sacrifices or burn them up completely? To me, the Bible is not clear on this. It seems to say burn them up completely, yet at other places it talks about how to eat the sacrifices. Also, I don't understand how burning up food can be pleasing to God. It seems like a real waste. After all, God doesn't eat or need to eat. John in Virginia. Well, a couple things, John. First there are different kinds of sacrifices. So there are peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings. Those are two categories of sacrifice. And when you offer a peace offering or a thanksgiving offering, most of the meat is eaten. They would offer part of it to God as a sacrifice, but... Most of it, the family and friends would eat. Now, they had to eat it at the temple, and there were little rooms uh, on the, by the sides along the walls, little alcoves, where you could go and eat. And you had to consume the whole of the animal. Couldn't leave any overnight, or else it had to be burned up. Um, they didn't allow leftovers. So this was uh, one type of sacrifice, but other sacrifices like a sin offering or a guilt offering were burned up whole. The whole thing was burned and nobody ate of that because it's offered up for forgiveness of sins. It's offered up in, you know, because I've done wrong. And... On one hand, it is something of a waste, you know, uh, from a certain perspective. But this was also a way to show, I give you everything I have. I give you my best. And that this kind of sacrifice, uh, guilt offering or, or, or sin offering, because you did something seriously wrong, that is offered and burned up whole because you're not there to get something out of it to gratify yourself but you are showing complete sorrow and giving up something very precious to you is a way to show sorrow so that's uh, that's why they would burn the whole thing up now we don't do that anymore we believe that Jesus Christ is the one sacrifice on the cross once and for all. He offers himself, and that replaces all the animal sacrifices. We don't sacrifice animals as part of any Christian uh, uh, religion. That's just not what's done. All those sacraments or sacrifices are symbols from the Old Testament, And believe me, they knew God didn't eat this. If you read Psalm 50, you see the Lord say, why are you bringing me all these sacrifices? I don't eat blood or drink the bull of goats. And besides, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because everything is already mine. But it's just like, you know, little kids, when they're sorry for doing something wrong. I remember my brother uh, was in my care when he was very small, and he had misbehaved, and I had to holler at him, you know, because it was, it was, what he was doing was dangerous. And he was very sorry, and so he came and brought me a dish of ice cream. It's that kind of, you know, making amends and saying, I'm sorry, and I really mean it, and I give you my best. So that's what's going on there. All right, well, we are flat running out of time. And uh, I hope that you you get to ask our Lord to help you grow in faith like the hemorrhaging woman. And we'll talk a little bit more about her next week. But of course, I want to give you a blessing May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May He lead you in all of your ways by His peace. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, remember, we can bring you this program and all the other programs only because it's brought to you by you. YOU MAKE IT POSSIBLE BY KEEPING US IN BETWEEN YOUR GAS BILL, YOUR ELECTRIC BILL AND YOUR CABLE BILL SO THAT WE CAN PAY OUR BILLS TOO. THANK YOU AND GOD BLESS.